Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. When we left off in the last episode, Reverend Jubb was deciding whether to help Sherlock convince Emma to cooperate. In other words, to answer Sherlock's questions about Lizzie's role in the murders. And the reality is that Jubb really had no choice here. Because Sherlock was threatening to go to the police if Jubb didn't say yes. And although he didn't know what Sherlock might have by way of evidence, Jubb really couldn't afford to take chances. Emma was the one who had to decide whether to cooperate in the end. Not Jubb. But in order to give Emma the opportunity to decide, Jubb had to go along and say yes. And so after committing himself to help, Jubb was sent off to get Morse. And when Morse arrived, Sherlock went ahead and told him the same thing that he told Jubb, with a few variations. For instance, he emphasized Morse's role in the family. He flattered him a bit. You're now the closest thing that Emma and Lizzie have to a father. In that capacity, you need to give them some guidance. He said there was no point in trying to speak directly to Lizzie. She isn't going to cooperate, and for that matter, her lawyer won't let me talk to her. So the best hope we have of finding this villain, Moriarty, is by going through Emma. And because you, Mr. Morse, have a close relationship with Emma, you're in a position to wield a lot of influence. Your help is critical. And so after a fair amount of explaining and redirecting, because Morse is a bit odd, and has a hard time processing stuff, especially when he's excited or upset. And you can imagine this was pretty upsetting to him, to hear that his nieces might be involved with a serial killer and that they were also involved in killing their father and stepmother. At any rate, after calming him down and getting him to focus, Sherlock's also able to get Morse to make a commitment. Yes, I'll help. Yes, I will tell Emma. It's in her interest to talk to you. So at this point, it's early afternoon, and they take a brief lunch break at the rectory. And according to Watson, they sit there. There, there are, I think, five of them. There's, and they're sitting there eating in silence. There's literally no conversation. It must have been a really tense meal. But anyway, when they finish, Sherlock sends Jubb and Morse off to the train station to meet Emma because she's gone up to Taunton to visit Lizzie. And so they meet her there and they bring her back to the rectory. Let me stop for a second and talk about how this investigation was different from every other case that I'm aware of. Sherlock felt really strongly about keeping an open mind when he started an investigation. He didn't want to prejudice the outcome by jumping to conclusions. And he had the opinion, which I think is correct, that if you make up your mind at the start of the investigation, before you have all the facts, you tend to twist the facts to support your theory. You don't let the facts lead you to a conclusion. You form your conclusion, and then you cram and distort and twist the facts so that they can support the conclusion you've already reached. When you do that, you tend to ignore facts that are inconvenient or that point in another direction. And so you can end up with a pretty unfair result or an unfair conclusion. And so Because that was his basic operating procedure, that was his philosophy, he tended to keep his opinions to himself when he was working on a case until he was confident that he had enough evidence to justify whatever conclusion he reached. But what we're looking at here is really different because if you think about it, he starts out assuming that Moriarty's involved. As soon as he reads about the murders, he says, this is Moriarty. And he has absolutely no evidence at that point to support his belief that it's Moriarty, other than the fact that it's a violent crime. He doesn't look anywhere else for an accomplice. And if he was operating in a completely objective way in this case, 
he probably would have started with Lizzie at the center and worked outwards. He wouldn't have jumped to some belief that she had met someone on a foreign trip. He would have looked at whether she had any local boyfriends. Did she have anybody that she was currently involved with? If not, did she have someone that she had been involved with who was devoted to her, somebody that she could manipulate? He would have questioned her friends and her acquaintances about any other relationships she might have had. He probably would have looked into her charity work at the church. Did she associate with anybody that might be inclined or willing to commit these types of crimes, maybe in exchange for money? But that's not what he does. Because he starts with a conclusion and operates from there, he doesn't have any real evidence to support this. This is all just based on his assumptions and his theories. And in order to get Jub and then Morse and then Emma to cooperate, he's basically bluffing them. He's leading them to think he has evidence when he doesn't really. And the only solid evidence he had at all was that Emma had apparently withdrawn some money two days earlier, gone to New Bedford by herself, and had given the money to some boy, some strange kid. And yeah, that looks suspicious, but it doesn't come anywhere near to establishing a connection between her, her sister, and Moriarty. Anyway, when he tells Jubb and Morse, and then later that day, Emma, that he has incriminating evidence linking Lizzie to the crime, it's basically a lie. As I said, he's bluffing, and if any of them had refused to cooperate, that probably would have meant the end of the case. Sherlock might have gone to the prosecutor or the police and told them Emma withdrew some money, she went to New Bedford, she gave it to a kid, that happened two days ago or three days ago, but I don't know whether that would have meant anything to the police. I have no idea whether that would have led to any further investigation. I don't think it would have, but it wouldn't have probably resulted in any significant change in terms of the course of the case. But up to this point, as he's waiting for Emma, everything so far has gone his way because Jubb and Morse had, I think, predictably agreed to help. However, he doesn't know what to expect from Emma, and she's really the key. If she refuses to give him anything, he's basically going to have to pack up and head home. So you can imagine that he was feeling pretty keyed up while he waited for Emma to come to the rectory. Because, as I said, the case really hinged on what she had to say. And you think about how badly Sherlock wanted to catch this guy. He'd been pursuing these brothers for, I would say, at least a decade. And so he must have been feeling very tense as he waited for her to show up. We don't have to speculate about Watson's reaction because he talks about this in his notes. And it's clear from reading them that he had this preconceived picture of Emma, this image of her. He'd gotten it into his head that she was deferential and subdued and that she lacked confidence. And I think this impression was based on things that he'd read in the papers and maybe to some degree on things that Sherlock had said to him. And I think it's also fair to say that the police and the prosecution had made it pretty clear to the press that they thought Lizzie was the dominant sibling and that Emma was viewed as subservient and compliant. They thought that Lizzie had led Emma and Emma was doing the following, that Lizzie made the decisions without consulting Emma. Lizzie would give the orders and Emma would obey. And it wasn't just the police and the prosecution that seemed to think this, because the newspapers painted the same picture. 
And I don't know whether the papers interviewed people who already held these views or whether the newspapers just disregarded the people who saw things differently. But at any rate, this seemed to be the general impression of Emma and Lizzie and of their relationship. But what's interesting is that when he finally meets her, Watson gets a pretty different impression. She doesn't seem cowed to him. There's nothing cringing or fearful about her. She pays close attention to everything that's being said, and she doesn't show any signs of anxiety. Her face, for the most part, he describes as impassive, and he says it's really hard to know what she's thinking or feeling. And when she's introduced to Holmes, and he's not introduced with his real name, he's introduced as somebody named Godfrey Jones, because that's what's on his warrant card. But when she's introduced to him and Watson and Mr. Blunt, she just gives him kind of a brief nod and and a curtsy. At any rate, after everybody takes a seat, Sherlock starts to talk, and he identifies himself as a Scotland Yard detective and He offers to show Emma all of the documentation and all the credentials, the same stuff that he had already showed Jubb earlier in the day. And Emma says, if Mr. Jubb's satisfied that they're authentic, then I'll accept that as true. So Sherlock then gets right to the point, and he says, the British government has sent me and my colleagues over here in pursuit of a dangerous criminal named Jabez Moriarty, and we have reason to believe that he's living somewhere near Fall River under an assumed name. He's the primary suspect in a number of murders that were committed in England, and he's the subject of an arrest warrant. The warrant is for financial crimes, not violent crimes. The point is, and there's no delicate way of saying this, ma'am, we have proof that this guy was involved in the murder of your father and your stepmother. And even more, we believe he's intimately acquainted with your sister, Finally, we believe you have information about this relationship, and you may have some knowledge as to his whereabouts, and that would be of invaluable assistance to us. Now, we want to be clear that we have no jurisdiction to investigate crimes that have happened in the United States. Our only interest is in finding this man and extraditing him to England so that he can stand trial. And we give you our word, as gentlemen, as official representatives of the British government, etc., etc., that we won't divulge anything we learn, directly or indirectly, to any U.S. law enforcement agency or to the prosecution. All we care about is Moriarty, and we have no obligation to tell U.S. law enforcement anything about what we know. So at this point, we're under the assumption that your sister is basically the victim, that this guy Moriarty has abused her, has manipulated her, misled her, maybe even coerced her into assisting him. We think that he targeted her and that before she knew what was going on, he had gained some kind of influence over her and that she was basically in his power and couldn't extricate herself. Holmes goes on, no matter how strongly your sister feels about this guy, no matter how much she may love him or think she loves him, he is extremely dangerous and he can't be trusted under any circumstances. Based on his history, we have every reason to believe that his only interest is in gaining control of your father's estate, and we think that if he manages to do this, you and your sister are in really serious danger. It's in your interest, and it's in your sister's interest to cooperate. And as I said, and I can't emphasize this enough, anything we learn about you or your sister's involvement in these crimes, whatever that involvement might be, or that remains confidential. This may be the only way that you and your sister can actually get rid of this guy. 
If you don't take our offer, this guy is going to hound you and your sister forever, and he's going to make your lives a torment. So here's a proposal, and it's pretty simple. You answer all my questions, and you do it completely honestly. In return, as I said, we won't divulge anything we learn to the prosecution or the police. And if we take him into custody, we'll get him out of here, we'll get him to England, and I don't anticipate he'll ever be in a position to come back and harass you. You need to know that I have information implicating you and your sister in these murders. That includes things that you've both done in the aftermath of the killings to cover up the crimes. I'm not going to tell you what I know. I'm not going to tell you what this evidence consists of. And I think you understand why I can't tell you that. Now, you may be skeptical that I know anything at all, and you may be tempted to turn me away, take your chances, say, no, I'm not going to take you up on this offer. You need to know that if you do that, I'll go straight to the police from here, from this meeting, and I'll tell the police and the prosecutor everything I know. I'm not doing that to punish you. I'm not doing it because I'm trying to blackmail you or force you. It's because I have no other choice. Because this guy that we're after, this guy Moriarty, is the most dangerous person I've ever encountered in a long career. And I'm morally, professionally, and legally obligated to do everything in my power to catch him and bring him to justice. If you don't cooperate with me, I have no other choice. I have to turn this information over to the police and the prosecutor because they may possibly act on it and possibly catch this guy. And that's what I need to try to do. And if you and your sister are basically collateral damage, I'm sorry, but this guy's so dangerous, I don't have any options. Now, I understand your sister has this really strong personality and she can be at times pretty difficult to resist. I don't know how much influence she has over you, but I have to say I'm concerned about it. And I assume that if you went to her with this proposal and asked what you should do, she would tell you in the strongest possible terms that you were not to talk to me. The fact that your sister has a strong personality doesn't mean she makes good decisions. Look at her current circumstances. She's the only person who's currently facing charges and her accomplice is out there free as a bird. So she's facing conviction and the gallows, and he's not. So do you think that by getting herself into that position, that is the result of good decisions on her part? Doesn't that tell you that she doesn't make good decisions, that she is headstrong? I thought it was prudent to go to Mr. Jubb and your uncle before I approached you. I'm sorry if you feel this is sneaky or underhanded. And I have to tell you, both of these men were free to tell me no. I told him the same thing I've told you, and I'll also say that when I laid the facts before them individually, one at a time, neither one hesitated. They both said that they would support me and try to convince you to cooperate. And here they are. You're free to ask them for yourself. They'll confirm that you really don't have a choice here. You can't risk your sister's life or your own liberty. And they trust that my associates and I will keep our word, and I hope that that gives you some peace of mind. If you agree to cooperate with me, which I think any sensible person in your position would do, you have to be completely truthful. You don't know what I have for information, and you can't afford to guess. If you say something to me that I know to be untrue, or if you withhold information from me, I'll terminate the interview on the spot and go straight to the police. Half measures will avail you nothing. You need to make a decision now. I can't give you time. You can't leave the room and talk to your uncle or talk to Mr. Jubb. You have to give me an answer right now. 
So she turns to Jub and her uncle and asks what they think, and they confirm what Sherlock said. We believe in your innocence. We love you. We support you. But these people from the British government mean business. They obviously have some reason to think that you're involved. I don't know what that is. I'm hoping they're mistaken. I don't think you can afford to turn them down because if they do have something, even if it's innocent, even if you have an innocent explanation for it, if it looks suspicious, you can be sure that both the police and the prosecution will interpret it that way. I don't think you can take that risk. You can trust these guys. I think you have to trust them. I think you have to believe that they will keep this information to themselves, provided that you're completely honest. So at that point, she turns, Emma turns to Sherlock and says, how do I know that you'll accept what I tell you as the truth? What if I tell you something that you don't want to hear? What if I tell you something that you consider disappointing and it isn't what you hoped I would say? How do I know you're going to be fair? That you're not going to say, oh, because you didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, I'm going to go turn you in. And Sherlock said in response, if you tell me something and I have no evidence to the contrary, I'll accept it as true. And that's all I can tell you. I can't do any better than that. And so Emma, I think it, it looks like she took a little time to think things over. And then she looked up and said, I don't have a choice. I'll tell you what you want to know. I'll tell you as much as I can. If I don't know something, I'll say so. And I think it would be easier if you asked me questions or you told me what you need, because otherwise I don't know where to start. And so I think what makes sense at this point, since I'm going on Watson's notes, is just to summarize Emma's statement and give you some indication as to what she's being asked, but basically just put it in the form of a narrative as if it's coming directly from her without interruptions. So here goes. How did Lizzie meet this guy and what was his name? She met him on her outbound voyage to Europe in June 1890, and she told me about him in her letters. He was the doctor on board the ship, and he was calling himself Alan Davidson. Now, at some point later, he changed it, and he started calling himself Robert Carter, and that's the name, as far as I know, that he's still using. But I think of him as Davidson because that's how my sister first referred to him. So when I'm talking about him in this interview, that's what I'll call him. Yes, I have met him. What does he look like? He's slightly above average height, but he's less than six feet. His build is muscular, maybe a little heavy, a little overweight. He has brown hair and brown eyes. And since I've known him, since I met him a year ago, he's always had a mustache. What are his eyes like and, and his nose? His eyes, I would say, are close set and his nose is long and straight. And he has thin lips. I wouldn't call it a full mouth. Other than that, I can't really tell you anything about his appearance. As for how he lost his job on the Cunard line, all I know is what my sister told me. And obviously, this is what he told her because she wasn't present when it happened. My understanding is that the captain confronted Davidson at the end of the voyage and said that he didn't like the way he behaved towards the passengers, that he was too free with them, especially with unattached women, and that as a result, he was going to fire him on the spot. And I don't know anything about a fight. I know nothing about Davidson hitting the captain. I didn't hear anything about that, so I can't say one way or the other. As for when my sister became intimately involved with him, I'm not positive, but my understanding is it was pretty quick. And if I had to guess, I'd say that they were thoroughly intimate before they'd even docked in Liverpool. As for his intentions, what he intended to do with the relationship and whether he intended to have any kind of future with her prior to losing his job, I can't tell you. 
but I know that ever since he's stuck with her pretty closely, and I don't think he's been away from her for any extended time. She says that on numerous occasions, he has assured her that he's devoted to her, that he admires her, and that he loves her. And my understanding is that they have talked about marriage, and that's come up a number of times. Yes, I believe that during her tour, after they docked in Liverpool for the next four months, that she saw him fairly often. I don't know where he was based. I don't know where he lived most of the time. I think he was looking for work on another ship, but he couldn't find work because he told Lizzie at some point he got blacklisted and that no reputable shipping line would take him on. He couldn't find work anywhere. Did my sister help him financially? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she did. I don't know how much she gave him. I know she cabled my father at some point during her her trip and asked him for additional money. And I know, I remember he wasn't happy about it, but he did send her something. I can't tell you how much. And I assume that Lizzie was giving Davidson money as much as she could afford to help him get by. How does she feel about him now? Well, I think she's always been in love with him. And she did know early on, she was aware early on that he had some kind of dark side, that there was a a problem, some problems in the past. Those have never really been clear to her. But she was just very much in love with him. She, She found him to be exciting. She thought he was sophisticated. She thought he was handsome. He wasn't like anybody she had ever met before. He was very different from the sort of people that she had known in Fall River. She seemed really happy, and she believed that he loved her. She thought this was mutual. I think she would have married him any time, almost from the moment she met him. And I think she loves him just as much now as she ever did. As for why he changed his name from Davidson to Carter... He told her that he had been falsely accused of some financial crimes and that he was innocent. I can't tell you all the details, but he says he had inherited some money at some point and he didn't know what to do with it. A mutual friend had introduced him to some people that were starting a business, some kind of investment firm, and they turned out to be thoroughly unscrupulous and dishonest. He had no idea. He had no idea of their true nature. They convinced him to become a silent partner. His name was on the firm letterhead, whatever kind of business this was. Their crimes were exposed, and they were clever and cunning, and they convinced the police that they weren't the ones behind this scheme, that Davidson was. So I gather that Davidson's been pursued. He's been quite bitter, I think. He feels really bitterly about it. He said that there's some detective, some English detective, who's pursued him for years. Some guy who's determined to ruin his life. I don't know that person's name. I've never heard it. And I can't give you any more details about why and when this business fiasco happened. I believe it was based in England. And he may have felt the need to change his name periodically just to shake off this person who he says is persecuting him. So at this point, we're going to stop in the next episode, we're going to get to the murders, obviously. Sherlock's going to be asking about that and other things. I hope you join me. And until then, take care. <laughs>